You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. So if you're a lover of books, you likely have a favorite genre of reading. Just by a show of hands, how many of you would say, yes, I love to read? Yeah, all right, good. Yeah. Um, I, I love to read. Um, I'm generally reading nonfiction stuff, theology, psychology, uh, biography, stuff my kids would call boring, right? Um, I'm just not good at reading fiction. I get bored quickly. I know that's bad. Um, but I, I gravitate towards like dead theologians. That's kind of my genre of, of reading. Um, I love hearing what other people are interested in and passionate, passionate about uh, reading. Some of you love fiction, you know, fantasy stuff, mystery. Uh, maybe you do love theology, biography, those kinds of things. Um, but I have yet to meet, maybe there's that person's out there, I, I've yet to meet a person who says, when they're talking about what they love reading, they go, you know what really excites me? What just like really stirs my imagination? And I love to just sort of, you know, curl up by the fire at the end of a long day. I really love reading just a big old book of legal code, right? Just thrills my heart. Now you might go, I bet lawyers do. I, probably not. They got to read that all day, right? It's, it's not exactly something that's exciting. It's something that might help you put you to sleep, but it's not exactly thrilling reading. Yet, here we are in our study of Exodus, began this this part of Exodus last week, and we're looking at a section of detailed legal code for God's people, the nation of Israel. And we started at the end of chapter 22, or chapter 20, verse 22, right after the Ten Commandments. We saw that last week, all the way through chapter 21 is where we stopped. And, and in this section of laws that we're in, last week and this week, it's, it consists of detailed civil applications of the Ten Commandments for the nation of Israel. It's talking about the civil life of this nation. And it's called, Moses calls this in chapter 24, verse 7, the book of the covenant. That's where we are. And what we see here is that God is, is telling his people that they're to live a godly life as a nation, a life that reflects his character as they interact with one another and with the world around them. And if you get into sort of the details of life, you can't just keep it uh, conceptual and big picture and theoretical. It has to get into the stuff of everyday life, and that's what we're seeing here. And while the specifics of these laws, and we talked about this last week, the specifics of these laws don't apply to us under the new covenant of Christ. Jesus has fulfilled the law. There are still principles here that clearly apply. So, we're not skipping over the book of the covenant, which is this sort of seemingly tedious legal code for Israel because why? God speaks to us here just as he speaks to us in all of scripture. All of scripture is God breathed. All of scripture is authoritative. All of scripture reveals to us something about the character of God and his work. R. Kent Hughes is helpful here. He says there are many good reasons to study the Old Testament law. It teaches us what God expects, it guides us into godliness, it exposes our sin and thus shows us our need of the gospel. But the law does something else that's very exciting. It reveals God's character. 
This makes the Old Testament law different from any law code or book of court decisions. The law reveals the law giver. We do not study it to find out what we have to do, but to know our God. And as we study and apply this law, we are conformed to his character. So last week, we began this sort of two-part sermon on the book of the covenant. And we saw three distinguishing marks of a godly life. God's people are to be marked by true worship because God is worthy of worship. They're to be marked by intentional compassion because God is a God of compassion. And they're to be marked by justice because God is a God of justice. And this morning, part two, we're seeing three more distinguishing marks of a a godly life as we look at chapter 22, verse 16, all the way through the end of chapter 23. And there's a verse here that I think in in the New Testament that we can sort of you know, hang our study on, I think is really helpful for us to keep in the back of our minds as we consider this passage because it tells us what God is doing in his people then, but also in us. First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, what God is doing here in Exodus with Israel is forming and shaping this new nation. His people that he just rescued by his mercy. They're they're to love God and they're to, to love one another. They're to be completely set apart and distinct, distinguished from the nations around them. Why? So that they can proclaim the excellencies by how they live, by how they speak of God to those around them. And likewise, friends, we who believe in Jesus, we are God's chosen people. He has rescued us by his mercy. He has set us apart so that we could display him to a watching world. We're to be a holy people. So in our passage this morning, we see these three more distinguishing marks of a godly life. And these are things that should define the Christian church today, even though the specific applications of these laws no longer apply. So what are these three more marks that we, we're looking at today? First, we'll see a godly life is marked by purity of life. We're to live a, a life of purity because God is holy. Second, we see a godly life is marked by rest in God's grace. We're to live a life marked by faith and rest in Christ because God is gracious. And then third and finally, we'll see that a godly life is marked by hope in future victory. Why? Because our God is victorious and he will see us through to the promised land. Okay, so let's jump in. Number one, a godly life is marked, uh, is marked by purity. Now, right out of the bat, we get some strange stuff, right? When we look at verse, uh, verses 16 and 17. When we look at this section in 22, 16 through uh, 23, verse 9, it's, it's really a section about purity. And we, we see three kinds of purity here. And the first one here emphasized is sexual purity. Verse 16 and 17 correspond with the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. So specific applications here in the life of Israel it says this, if a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her fatherly, utterly, her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, this is not talking about 
a man forcing himself upon a woman. What's happening here? If that were the case, Deuteronomy 22 tells us that that man would have, the death sentence would have been a capital crime if, he, if this is what the situation here. Instead, this is describing a situation in which a man seduces a woman and they have consensual relations together outside of marriage. Okay? Consensual sexual relations. The man is responsible to provide for the woman through marriage unless the father refuses and he had to pay the bride price for her. Now, while this is, we talked about this last week as well, we have to look at these passages like if we were entering a foreign country that we knew nothing about, right? We have to understand their customs and cultural things that are foreign to us. But, but really what this shows us here is God's concern for the vulnerable, okay? While, while in this case, both parties are wrong in God's eyes, which are the only eyes that matter, the woman after this would have been would have had a very hard time finding a husband and starting a family and would have been susceptible to a life of of poverty. So God gives this law to protect her. Relates to what we saw last week, right? God's care for the vulnerable, his compassion and justice. So it shows us, remember, law reveals who God is. shows us God's care for the vulnerable. But this also shows us Uh, the serious consequences of misusing God's good gift of sex for selfish gain. The, The Bible is crystal clear. I understand our culture is not crystal clear on this, but the Bible is crystal clear. Sex is for marriage between one man and one woman for a lifetime. It is not a tool for selfish personal pleasure. Genesis 2, 24. Man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, which Jesus reiterates in the Gospel of Matthew. And this sounds completely crazy in our sex-crazed culture, doesn't it? To define sex like that, a self-centered view of sex and sexuality is like ambient noise today. You know what ambient means? It describes the Something in your environment you're completely surrounded by, but you're so accustomed to it, you have no idea it's there. Right? Kind of like the, the music at a coffee shop, just sort of in the background noise. Or if you live near a busy street, sort of the, the, the sound of traffic is just ambient noise. Sexuality is the ambient noise of our culture, whether it's storefronts or the internet or media and and so on. And the message is this, this exists for you and for your pleasure and for your selfish gain. You can do whatever you want with your body. And this command shows us that God says that's not how it works. Sex is serious and it's reserved for marriage. And so for to sort of draw out a principle here, it's the principle of purity in our own lives. We should fight for sexual purity as God's people. When we come to the New Testament, we read things like this. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, writing to a church that was planted in a culture much like ours in Corinth, especially in terms of sexuality. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 
Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Now listen to this. You are not your own. That's the total opposite of the message of sexuality from our culture. The message from our culture is your body, your choice, do whatever you want. God says, no, 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 I've filled you with my spirit. You are not your own. You were bought with the price, so glorify God in your body. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5, for this is the will of God. I love this verse. So many people, what's the will of God for my life? Wouldn't it be great to just know the will of God for my life? Well, yes. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 tells you, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's it. Write that down. God wants you to be holy and set apart for him. Then he goes on, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lusts like the Gentiles, or you'd say unbelievers, who do not know God. What is God saying? You are my people. I've saved you. I've purchased you. I've filled you with my spirit. I'm a holy God, and you are to live lives by grace that display my holiness. That includes fleeing from sexual immorality. Now, we also see here a spiritual, or we could call it a religious purity. If we look down at at verse 18. Now, if you thought that previous law was strange, here's a doozy. Here, verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Verse 20, whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. Now, this corresponds with, remember these are applications of the ten words, this corresponds with the first and second commandment, right? Those first parts of the law, to worship God and God alone. Now, why these three things together? Well, each of these capital offenses in Old Testament Israel, they involved false pagan worship. That's why we see the triad there, okay? Remember, there were surrounding nations that practiced these things, things like witchcraft, bestiality, and sacrificing to false gods. Now, some of you are worried. You're like, do I got to burn my Harry Potter books now or my Lord of the Rings books? That's not what's being talked about here. It's not talking about a fantasy literature that tells a story. This is talking about false worship, and trying to mix in false worship of surrounding nations with following God. And remember, I said this last week, I think it goes without saying, but we do have a podcast on the internet, so I just want to make it clear. It's not our place to put anyone, to try anyone, or put anyone to death for breaking these Old Testament laws. That's a wrong reading of this. These laws in Exodus 22 and elsewhere were given to Israel as a nation under God for a specific time and a specific place. They have been fulfilled. They no longer apply. And the reason I think that's really particular for us is because if we look at New England's history, we see a really bad application of of this verse, you shall not permit a sorceress to live. Friday, I don't know if you knew this, I didn't know this until this week, but Friday was the anniversary, March 1st, uh, 1692, of the Salem Witch Trials, right? In which, also I didn't know, 20 people and two dogs were sentenced to death for witchcraft. They were executed on suspicion of being witches. That's a bad application of 
this text for us as Christians today. The point here is that God alone is to be worshipped. God alone is to be worshipped. And our, our secular culture sort of denies the supernatural altogether, so we kind of you know, laugh at these things. But there are many who are enslaved to New Age occult practices, attempts to get spiritual power apart from God. And let me just remind all of us, as we look to the Scripture, is there spiritual power apart from God? Yes, there is, but it only belongs to Satan. So any kind of religious or spiritual attempt to gain power, like things like sorcery, witchcraft, to communicate with the dead, all these sorts of things, they are completely and totally contrary to worshiping God and God alone. So God says, have none of this. And, and what's, what's interesting is that it might be easy. I was trying to think about this this week. Like, what? It's so hard to apply this because I'm, I'm not a witch, right? As far as I know, I don't think any of you uh, are either or claim to be. While that is sort of growing, we, we can still get to the underlying issue here. Witchcraft, sorcery, those kinds of things, what are they? They're, they're believing the same lie that the serpent gave in the garden. Namely this, you can be like God without God. Right? So while it might be easy to go, listen, let me just skip over this, has nothing to do with me. I think one of the ways that today we should read this passage is we should say, okay, maybe that's not my particular struggle or my background, but you know what I do? I am tempted to strive to be in the place of God. I I am tempted to elevate my comfort above God's glory. I am tempted to to clamor for for sovereignty over my own life instead of submitting to God. So even though this might be difficult to apply, I think the best thing to say is, what is, what is God telling us here? He is telling us that spiritual purity is sole allegiance to Christ in every area of our life. And if we are worshiping, exalting anything in our lives above God, then we have broken the first and second commandment. We have placed other gods above him. God calls us to spiritual purity. Now we also see he calls us to what we could call social purity. Verse 21 to all the way to chapter 23 verse 9. We, we can't get through all of these but this fits with what we saw last week. God's people are to be marked by compassion and justice. It's amazing how many of these laws are related to compassion and justice as it reveals who God is to us. And the emphasis here is on caring for the foreigner or the sojourner the widow, and the fatherless. Look at the bookends. If you have your Bible in front of you, we'll put it on the screen as well. But if you can see it in your Bible, 22, uh, chapter 22, verse 21 says, You shall not wrong the sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Then jump over to 23, verse 9. It's the end of that section. It says almost the same thing. You shall not oppress the sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were a sojourner. You were sojourners in the land of Egypt. What is, what is the law saying here? It's essentially the golden rule, right? It's essentially what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Or we could change that a little bit and say, because God has been so gracious and compassionate to you, you should be gracious and compassionate to those in similar situations. 
to those who are in need. As, as Christians, we should be quick to bless those God brings to our cities and our neighborhoods from the nations, whether it's students, whether it's refugees, whether it's for work, whatever it may be. Our, our heart, as those who were formerly sojourners but brought into the nation of God, the people of God, our heart should be for the sojourner. First and foremost. Now, our world says you're, what you should first do when those people come into your city and neighborhood, is you should form a really strong political opinion on those people. That's not what God says. Now, should you care about policy? Can you, should you have opinions about immigration and all those things? That, yeah, absolutely. That's fine and good. But that's not first and foremost. And those things must be informed by what God says here. Your heart should be for the sojourners. To bring the gospel to them. Because God has rescued you, Israel, from Egypt. God has rescued you, Christian, from Satan's sin and death and brought you into his family. So you should long to bring that same kind of grace and care to them. Romans fifteen seven. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Alan Cole comments on this. He says... Love for resident alien, or you could say sojourner, is not based on mere humanitarianism, but on a fellow feeling which comes from a deep personal experience of God's saving grace when in a like, a, a like situation. Right? That's what's being described here. Now, as we, as we read on, we also see care not just for the sojourner, but also the orphan and the widow. Verse 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Now, you know this is important to God because of the intense response to harming orphans and widows. He, he says, I, and there's multiple passages like this. My heart is so strong for the vulnerable that to, to mistreat them is to stand directly opposed. It's to invite my wrath upon you. In fact, caring for the orphan and widow is so essential to holiness, so much so that James, in James 1.27, in the New Testament says this, Religion that is pure, that's the word we've been using, right? Purity. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. I think James 1.27 is a wonderful summary of this first point, that our lives should be marked by purity because our God is holy. Personal holiness and holiness as we love those around us. So that's number one. A godly life is marked by purity. Number two, we see a godly life is marked by rest in God's grace. So we see this in chapter 23, beginning in verse 10. And there's a, a focus here on laws related to, to Sabbath, which would be an application of the fourth commandment. And also laws related to 
festivals, which were Sabbath-like festivals for the people of Israel. And both of these, the laws uh, uh, for the Sabbath, the weekly Sabbath, the seven-year Sabbath, and also these laws, uh, these festivals, all of, the, all of these things are meant to help God's people trust in him, right? To, to have faith in him that he will provide. So look at verse 10. First, for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. So six days of work, one day of rest. Six years of harvesting your fields, then one year of resting your fields. And this was for all of the people. Okay? This was for all of the servants in the household, the sojourners. So it wasn't as if a guy could go, you know what, I'm going to rest my field this year, but I've got Bill and James and their crew, and they're going to work this thing so we can keep the income going. Even the animals get a rest. Right? Why? Because God's people were to place their faith and trust in the Lord for provision, not to be dependent upon themselves. This is, I think this is so hard for us to understand, hard for me to understand. I've only always ever lived in cities. I know, not, like, I, if I go to a farm, I just get a little scared. I don't, you know, what's around the corner, I, you know. And so I don't know anything about an agricultural society. Many of us, I understand not all, but many of us can sort of take a day off work without really sort of feeling the, the, the financial pinch of it. But in an agricultural society like this, and by the way, the surrounding nations are just grinding seven days a week, right? This would greatly affect the, the production output. So, so to put it into perspective, what, what would it do to the average person financially if after working consistently for a long time, suddenly they decided they were going to take six weeks off without pay each year? You'd feel the financial pinch, right? This, this was a major test of faith. Sabbath is a test of faith for God's people. Will they trust in him to provide? But Sabbath is not just a test. It's also for the benefit of the people. Jesus tells us that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Um, someone who studies soil, I learned this this week, is called a pedologist. Did anybody know that? Oh, man, I feel awesome right now. All right. I just taught you a pedologist is someone who is an expert in soils. And pedologists tell us that letting soil rest or lay fallow, as God's people were to do with their fields in the seventh year, it's actually better for the soil in the long run. It helps restore the soil's natural nutrient balance. It's even better than just fertilizer. Right? That's the way God created it. Do you, do you see that? God created in creation a, a way for, for, for there to be rest, even for the soil. And guess what? That's, that's the way he created you and me as well. He built it into his creation. He built it into us, and here he's building it into Israel's calendar, a rhythm of trusting in and resting in God for provision and for redemption. And I think what's really emphasized in the, these three feasts is 
both the provision and the redemption that God has for his people. We see these feasts mentioned in verse, verses 14 through 17. Now, all of these feasts, and there's actually more as you read through the Old Testament, but all of these began with Sabbath and ended with Sabbath. First, we see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was established to celebrate the grace of salvation. Israel's deliverance from Egypt after the Passover. Verse 16, we see the Feast of Harvest mentioned here. This would happen later in the season when the first fruits of the crops were ready and it was a time to celebrate the grace of God's provision for his people. He's provided food for them. And then we see the festival of ingathering in verses 16 through 18, which is also called the festival of booths or the festival, festival of tabernacles. And it would be a celebration of just gratitude and joy. People would bring their offerings to God for who he is and what he's done They're praising him for his grace. All of this was a call for the people to rest in the grace of God. That's the point here. Now, one of the biggest questions about the Sabbath all throughout church history, and it's still a question today, is how does it apply to us today? Now, Paul tells us in Colossians 2.16, I think this is a key verse for understanding not only the Sabbath and these festivals, but the entire Old Testament. It says this, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. And here's the reason why. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. See what Paul is saying here? There's this question of, man, how do we apply these things? Should we enforce Sabbath on a Saturday? Should we enforce these festivals? Should we, should we really make it a part of the church and, and, and make it something we have to do? And, and Paul feels no obligation to require that. Why? Because he says those things are shadows, and shadows are always attached to an object, right? Follow the shadow to the substance, the object, Christ. He's pointing to the reality that Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus is the true and greater Sabbath. He also speaks of the Sabbath in Romans 14, verse 5. He says, one person esteems one day as better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, an Israelite under the Old Testament could not say that. If he said that, they'd be like, Jeff, you better keep that down, because you're going to go to jail or worse, right? But Paul, under the new covenant in Christ, doesn't feel any need to obligate the Gentile Christians in Rome to Sabbath keeping. I think that's helpful for us here. So, and we can spend so much time on this, but if there is a special day in the New Testament, it's the first day of the week, the day when Christ rose from the dead, which many theologians say that is like the eighth day. Sabbath was on Saturday. Then there's this eighth day marking a new week, a new creation, with the first day of the week when Christ rose from the dead and the church gathered to worship on that day, as we read in Acts 20, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. I think all of this points us to the Sabbath is fulfilled in Christ. We're not required to celebrate this on a specific day. And Jesus also hints at this in, in the Gospel of Matthew. He gets in this big argument in Matthew chapter 12, and the Pharisees rebuke Jesus 
because his disciples were picking grain on the Sabbath, which, by the way, they were allowed to do. The Pharisees were twisting this law. But Matthew 12, 8, Jesus says of himself, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. But you know what's interesting is right before that passage, at the end of chapter 11, I think these are meant, Matthew's saying, these are meant to be seen together. Right before that instance, Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is hinting at this new day that has arrived in him. He is our Sabbath rest. And Hebrews 4 says it explicitly. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should esteem or should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed enter that rest. You see, the nations around Israel, they served false gods, and those gods were extremely demanding of the people. You have to earn your keep with false gods. You have to earn your standing with idols. Only the one true God, only our God in Jesus Christ doesn't say, here's what you've got to work to do to come to me. Only Jesus says, lay your burdens down and come to me and I'll give you rest. So the first primary continual application of this for us today is simple. Trust in Christ. Jesus alone will give you a deep and abiding rest of your soul. Rest from the, the weight of guilt and shame because he bore your guilt and shame on the cross. Rest from trying to work to pay off your sin debt. The debt has been paid. Right? Rest from trying to control your life because Christ is sovereign. He holds it all in his hands. Rest from anxiety about money because he is your provision and your provider. Rest from the vanity of seeking joy in this world. He's our joy and delight. Right? Jesus is our Sabbath rest. David Murray applies this, I think, really helpfully. He writes this, whatever you will complete or not today, rest in the only work that will never need to be done again. Rest in the fact that Jesus has done the most impossible job in the world. He's done it perfectly and made it available. Take it, enjoy it, build your life on it, let it change your whole view of your life and work. Use his work to put your work into perspective. Believe his work is counted as yours. And despite all that you fear and dread about the next 10 hours, or we could say the next week, a critical boss, a vicious competitor, a looming deadline, a complaining customer, an impossible sales target, unrelenting children, monotonous drudge, you have Christ's perfect work credited to your account. Believe in him. Now, another application of this is, is this, is simple. Rest your body, right? It, it would be foolish of us to just throw out the whole principle and say, oh, great, it's fulfilled in Jesus, now I can just work 80 hours a week. Nothing to worry about there. No, regularly build in rhythms of rest in your life. When, when you do that, you are saying, God, I know I'm finite and you are infinite, 
You're trusting in him. You're saying, I know I'm weak and you're strong. I, I know I'm a creature. I need a day off. You're a creator. You don't, you don't need a day off. I need good sleep because I'm created. God, you never sleep because you're the creator. I trust in you. Pause and surrender to him. And the goal is, as we, as we, see, at the, we see this in, in Exodus 23, verse 12, what's the goal? That he wants his people to be refreshed, that you may be refreshed. So evaluate your life. Are you, are you working too hard because you are trusting in yourself and not trusting in Christ? Build in rhythms of rest. And I think this also uh, applies and informs the way we view the weekly gathering. We celebrate the fulfillment of all of these feasts every time we gather and celebrate the Lord's Supper each Lord's Day. Do you realize that? We are, we are renewing our faith. We are worshiping God in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're feasting together as God's people. And so this should be a reminder to us not to approach the gathering, not to approach the Lord's table as just this mere religious ritual, but with hearts of faith and trust in Christ for our salvation and our provision. Israel was to stand out as a people who rested and trusted the Lord. And likewise, in our frenetic and anxious society, we should be marked by a rest in Christ and invite others into that rest. And then third and finally, we see a life marked by hope and future victory. This is the end of the book of the covenant. And this final section tells us of this coming victory and entrance into the promised land. Victory over Israel's enemies from, from Canaan, the surrounding nations. And, and typically at the end of the covenant, there would be, of, a, of an ancient covenant, there would be blessings and curses given if you keep or break the covenant. We see that here. But before God tells us those, those blessings and curses... We're also told, and this is what we want, I want to focus on, we're also told that an angel will go before the people. Look at verse 20. He says, Behold, I'm sending an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Now, who is this angel that goes before them? He's in one sense, he's distinguished from God, right? Because he's, we're told he's an angel and he's sent by God. In another sense, he also has these uniquely divine attributes. God says, my name is in him and he has the authority to pardon sin, well, John McKay says this, Christian interpreters have generally identified the angel mentioned here and the angel of the Lord found throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, as one phenomenon which is a temporary pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity to give encouragement to the people of God. So John McKay says this is a pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know how that works, and I, but I tend to agree with this giving encouragement, going before the people. He's the one who goes before his people to protect them and bring them to the place he has prepared for them. Once again, we see Exodus. Draw our eyes directly to Jesus. We've seen this all throughout this series. 
that, that this book parallels and pictures the Christian life. Israel is enslaved in Egypt. We're enslaved to sin. Israel's miraculously de- delivered from slavery. We're miraculously delivered from the slavery of our sin through Christ. Israel's given a mediator between God and man through Moses. We are given a mediator between God and man in Jesus Christ. And as Israel travels through the wilderness... To the promised land, we, as God's people, journey through the wilderness of our fallen world toward the promised land of eternity. Parallels are so clear. And to Israel and to us, those of us who are in Christ today, says, you will not go through this journey alone. I will be with you and I will go before you. You see, the, the Christian life is, is a treacherous and difficult journey. I think no one captures this better than John Bunyan in his book, The Pilgrim's Progress, the second best-selling book in history, first in, in the English language. We have a kid's version of, of that book. It's called The Dangerous Journey. What a, what a wonderful description of the Christian life. We journey through valleys. It's not a cakewalk. It's not easy. We walk through valleys of the shadow of death, as Psalm 23 puts it. But he goes before us, and he secures the victory, and our hope is in him. In fact, I'm convinced that Jesus had Exodus 23.20 in mind right before his death when he told the disciples in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place before you? And if I go and prepare a place before you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Christ goes before us in this treacherous journey. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's in Christ. And friends, not only does he go before us, he promises the victory. We see this in Exodus 23, verse 31. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Notice how much eyes we see here. God is saying, I will do this. It's not dependent upon you. It's dependent upon me. Now, sadly, as we'll see just in a few weeks even in Exodus, we don't even have to get out of the the book of Exodus to see that God's people fail here. They fail to keep the covenant, just like we have. They turned to false gods. They didn't fully drive out their enemies. It did become a snare to them. But what they could not do, God did. And what you and I cannot do, which is keep God's law, Christ has done. The true and greater Israel has accomplished. He secured the victory by his life, death, and resurrection. And all who trust in him and walk by faith in him will make it to the end. Will make it to eternity. That's not a maybe, that's a promise. Philippians 1.6 He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And this, this reality that our future hope, our future victory, that we will be sustained through this life as Christians, we will make it to the end, it is such a wonderful antidote for our grumbling and complaining, isn't it? I, don't, I, I am, you know, and we see this time and time again in, in Israel, but I am, so, I am a really good cynic. I just, I look at the news, I get discouraged, right? You know, we're about to start an election, we're in an election year, it's like, oh my goodness, right? It's so easy to look at the world around us and become cynical and complain and to grumble at all that's wrong with the world. But friends, we, we, we can't ignore these things. We have to be honest about them. Yet, Christ wins. Our, our victory is secure. We will make it to the end and he will sustain his people. In the end, he wins. And that shouldn't make us careless, but it should fill us with joy and expectation and hope. So much so that we stand out in a world of cynicism. And people say there's something different about those Christians. They're actively engaged in the world. They're loving people. They're living lives of purity. They're kind of weird. I don't really understand what's going on. But man, they are joyful and hopeful. And we get to say, yes, let's tell you what's different about us. His name is Jesus. Invite them in. The words of of Samuel Stennett's hymn, On Jordan's Stormy Banks I Stand, are encouraging to us here. And I just want to close with this. This hymn says this, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. O'er all those wide extended plains shines one eternal day. There God the Son forever reigns and scatters night away. No chilling winds or poisonous breath can reach that healthful shore. Sickness and sorrow, pain and death are felt and feared no more. When I shall reach that happy place, I'll be forever blessed, for I shall see my Father's face and in his bosom rest. Victory belongs to him. Our hope is in the victory of Christ. And in the meantime, brothers and sisters, let's let's live godly lives marked by purity because he is holy, by resting in Christ because he is gracious, and by looking forward to the final day because he is victorious.